0: Hello, it's Julie Bindle, and today I'm speaking with my friend and collaborator, Robert Bob Jensen, who until 2018 was Professor of Journalism at the University of Texas, Austin. And he's also a pro-feminist, anti-sexist campaigner against the sex trade, against pornography, prostitution, and the like. And he's author of several books including the end of patriarchy radical feminism for men yes that's right for men he describes radical feminism as a gift to men and it reminds me of that old joke why does the anti-sexist man walk into a bar because it's set so low now that absolutely without question applies to so many men that posture and grandstand about how pro-feminist, anti-sexist they are. But in my view, and we've been friends since 2006, Bob is the real deal. Have a listen to him.
1: When I was a young boy in grade school, uh, I was short, skinny, effeminate. uh, In other words, a target. Uh, I was late to mature. I was always the smallest kid in my class. So I grew up always knowing, you know, I wasn't up to the standard of masculinity, even though I wouldn't have had the language for it at the time. But what's interesting is once I got to college, and had matured, uh, I started trying to be a man in that very typical way. So even the fact that I had been, you know, basically a target for bullies as a kid, uh, it was a quick switch to try and be a real man. So throughout my twenties. I tried to do that and I wasn't very good at it. I was pretty miserable, uh, but I was trying to emulate what I thought it meant to be a man. And what changed in my life was um, stumbling back into graduate school and being lucky enough to meet not only feminists, but radical feminists, uh, being lucky to meet a man who was immersed in that movement and could be a role model. And all of a sudden I realized that I wasn't the problem you know, I was a little weird and, you know, everybody's strange in their own way. Um, but the problem wasn't that I was weird. The problem was that the the model for what it meant to be a man was so distorted, flawed, and destructive. So um, it was engaging with radical feminism uh, in my early 30s that really changed the framework for me and allowed me to see that while I had problems, everybody has problems, uh, I wasn't the problem. The problem was the culture and I needed to struggle with that, which meant not only finally being able to express some of um, the aspects of myself that weren't typically masculine in patriarchal terms, but it also meant coming to terms with the damage I had done to people, mostly to women, when I was trying to be a man. And so it was both this incredible sense of relief and also a challenge to me to, to make good on the moral commitments that come with trying to to overcome all these incredibly oppressive systems.
0: Well, what tell me, why would men give up privilege? It seems on the one level, it makes sense. As a white person, I can think about having a commitment to anti-racism and other issues, but it's difficult to give up privilege, isn't it? Especially when all of your peers are just saying oh, come on, don't be ridiculous. What do you mean patriarchy? What on earth do you mean radical feminism?
1: Well, here I think we have to determine or uh, distinguish between short-term material interests and the long-term goal of trying to be fully human. So it's absolutely true that in the short term, if one is white and challenges white supremacy, if one is male and challenges patriarchy, if one lives in the U.S. and challenges you know U.S. dominance, And of course, if one is middle-class or economically stable and challenges capitalism, it's true that in the short-term you give things up, So let's take patriarchy and and men. Uh, Men are trained, uh, not every single man in every single society, but as a rule, men in patriarchy are trained to see women or if you're gay, other men uh, as, you know, sort of objectified bodies that exist primarily for your pleasure. And you get socialized into that kind of sexuality. And it may be a distortion of humanity. It may be oppressive to women. It may be lots of things, but it feels good, right? It produces sexual pleasure. And so when you confront a feminist critique and you realize, oh, I've been socialized sexually into this really um, distorted system, uh, you give up something at first. So, you know, I've done a lot of work on pornography. When you give up pornography, you give up what pornography delivers, which is cheap, quick, easy orgasms. But there's something on the other side. So the short-term material uh, loss, I think, is compensated for by a long-term depth and richness of human experience. Now, that might sound kind of abstract, but it's very real in my life. Um, You know, I... I wouldn't go back to the person I was before I encountered radical feminism for any amount of money, right? Because the person I was, was unhappy and unclear about who he was and also was contributing in very direct ways to the oppression of women. Now, I'm not saying I'm a, you know, perfect feminist man, nobody ever is, but um, the changes I think been beneficial not only for the larger society it's been incredibly beneficial for me. My emotional life, my personal life, my friendships, not only intimate relationships, but friendships are richer, deeper, more meaningful. I have friendships with men my own age that are far more meaningful and, and rich than they would have been if I hadn't encountered feminism. So that's the payoff. The payoff is your life gets better, uh, even as you give up some of what seem like the, the goodies that come with being in a position of privilege.
0: I would love you to be um, one of many, many, many men that hold this view and that do the work that you do, but you're not. We know this. You are still relatively rare. There are men around the world that are coming to the realisation that patriarchy also fucks them up, albeit different levels, different ways. But what do we do to get this message through to, for example, Working class men, men who don't have a university education, or, and maybe this is a separate question, but I want to take it all at at once. Those men that consider that their lives are hard enough already. Black men, criminalised men, men that are treated like dirt within the workplace. How the hell do we get through to them? This message that you have absorbed and that you actually live your life. Um, Yeah, you you live it through your life.
1: Uh, Well, of course, there's a political argument full of, you know, analysis and history and data. Uh, But I think you're pointing to the obvious fact that in most of our lives, we aren't moved to change because of analysis, history and data. We're moved to change because of an experience. And that leads to a kind of, um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's counterintuitive in some way, Uh, One of the things I learned in feminism, as most men do when we encounter it, is it's a good thing to shut up now and then (laughs) to listen, to learn, uh, to pay attention to the experiences of women. But at the same time, if we're going to be effective, we also then have to move forward and be willing to speak about ourselves. So, uh, you know, it's a, a kind of truism that the problem with white capitalist patriarchy is it puts people like me in the center and our experiences become the norm and therefore we have to stop assuming and speaking about our own experiences so much. But it's also true we have to narrate this transition from you know, traditional patriarchal masculinity to a different way of living. And so we have to talk about ourselves. So I try to talk not so much theoretically as to talk about my own experience and and you know how I suffered as a, a boy who didn't live up to masculine norms, even though the problem of patriarchy is not primarily that men suffer. Men do suffer, women suffer much greater. There's all these sort of, you know, on the one hand but. But in the end, we have to be willing to talk openly about it. You know, as you were speaking, uh, one uh, example came to mind. There's an American uh, musician and actor named Common, African-American man, and I remember clear as day listening to an interview in which he talked about going to therapy right so in a culture he came out of men didn't go to therapy men didn't open up men didn't you know reflect on their own vulnerability and here was this guy as if it were just an everyday thing to say you know therapy helped me a lot here's what it meant to me that small act of being you know open enough in public to talk about your own struggle has a huge effect so you know, there's political organizing. There's lots of ways men can contribute to rape crisis centers and other feminist political projects. Uh, but there's also just a, a having, and it, this will seem kind of odd, having the courage. It's not really that courageous to talk about your own emotional life and struggles with others, but for some people it is, especially for some men. But just having the courage to say those kind of things and. Perfectly everyday, ordinary settings, I think, is really important. Uh, That's what I've been trying to do, especially as I get older and reflect on how important listening to men be vulnerable was in my development. And so, one thing, you know, if I were to condense it to one instruction to men is be vulnerable in public, be vulnerable with your friends. It will have, you know, a huge, unpredictable, but I think over the long term, huge effect on how we men open up to change.
0: So, of course, men's vulnerability in private, in relationships with women, can be a dangerous thing, can't it? It can be manipulative. It can mean that women feel that empathy, that sympathy for, for men. And often I've heard experts in domestic abuse and violence, in coercive control, and certainly I've seen it through the work I've done, say look, the last thing we want is men to talk about their feelings um, because this is what women get in abusive situations all the time. So can you do that for the listener? Can you actually separate those two tactics, those two strategies out into what is positive and what we know is part of the manipulative framework?
1: You're absolutely right. Uh, Men often know exactly how to be vulnerable in a in a kind of false way um, to engender women's empathy. Uh, uh, women are sometimes too nice for their own good, as I think you would agree. So I'm making a distinction between that kind of self-reflection about our own vulnerability to understand ourselves, different from using it as an excuse. Right? So I could, I could, if if I were being violent, let's say, I could give you a long story about how you know, my upbringing, my father, my brother, you know, it trained me this way, and oh, feel sorry for me. That's using your own story as a weapon, in a sense. It's using it as an excuse for your your misbehavior. What I'm talking about is men, especially men talking among themselves, not looking to women for, you know, validation, but talking amongst ourselves about that vulnerability. That, I think, is a distinctly different enterprise. Um, but you're absolutely right. It, there has to be a kind of (laughs) eternal vigilance, uh, because it's so easy for even well-intentioned critical self-reflection by men to slide into, oh, woe is me. And you see it all over the place now, you know, men trying to argue that, that men have it worse than women now, that there's been this, you know, and you might not have heard about this, Julie, but feminism conquered the world. And <laughs> and now it's men who are at risk and men who don't graduate from college as much. And, you know, and what that is, of course, is, is a mistake in analysis. Because, of course, many men, uh, working class men, poor men, men of color, all sorts of men have problems that are very real. And the simple question is, did women cause them? You know, is the fact that women now have a fair shot at Spots in university, the cause of of men's academic failure. Well, of course not. Right? The problem is a system that doesn't value people. It's a system that has not only this deeply embedded patriarchy, but deeply embedded white supremacy, and an economic system that simply puts profit over people. Well, that's the source of the anguish of men. Um, you know that there's a, a a big discussion in the United States how you know the the changes in the economy the deindustrialization men once had a place in the world as as you know the breadwinner good union job in a factory and those are disappearing that's all true those are disappearing it doesn't mean a traditional nuclear family with a man in control is the model we want to replicate but the change is important to pay attention to the de-skilling of the industrial economy, all of these things which is just a way of saying, in case nobody noticed, the world is complicated. And, well, the e- and the easiest thing to do is blame the wrong people for your problems. I think that's a, a human failing.
0: Indeed. And, you know, we see it in the UK. We have this conversation about asylum seekers, about refugees, about migrants. And it's uncomfortable because it's based on a complete fallacy and prejudice. But then you're dictating to people who, you know, I'm a middle-class privileged media lovey, um, and I'm telling people that live in much poorer areas in more difficult circumstances that they don't have problems caused by X, Y, and Z. And it's a very uncomfortable conversation because they tell me, but you don't live my life and you don't know. And it's, it's always difficult, but... What I also found difficult in recent years, and I want to ask you about feminism and definitions both in the US and the UK, is this move by some women that say they're feminists or that don't use that term, but they say they're women's rights activists, that are moving towards a kind of biological essentialist version of feminism, which I personally am very scared about very uncomfortable about and that the early pioneers used as an example of what we needed to challenge the kind of biology is destiny what do you think about that because we have you use the term radical feminist a lot I am viewed as a radical feminist and very probably am but I stopped using that term I just use feminist in order to I hope, get the message across that the other versions aren't feminism, the liberal feminism, it's not feminism. But what about this move towards the essentialist, the kind of stay-at-home-and-bake-cookies? Because there's two things for me. One is, for those women, the I want to stay home and look after my husband and raise my children. I think women um, should obey men. OK, so they're few and far between, but they're on the rise again. Feminism should be for them. And I support those women as my sisters. And feminism, of course, should speak to them. But some of the women that are moving towards a more essentialist version of feminism are using the term. And it's really confusing people as to what feminism is.
1: I think your your reference to the the so-called sexual revolution is really important here. So um, first of all, it it may seem rather arcane, but let's go back 100,000 years and remember that if you want to talk about traditional gender roles, they weren't about patriarchy. Patriarchy is a relatively recent phenomenon in human history, several thousand years old, but we're a species that's two to 300,000 years old. And in our foraging past, in our evolutionary history, we had relatively egalitarian gender roles and shared responsibilities. Of course, there weren't kitchens to stay home and bake cookies in 100,000 years ago. But we have to remember that our, our evolutionary history is a species. The reason we're the dominant species on the planet is because we're very good at cooperation and collaboration in egalitarian settings. So that's the, the foundation. Well, let's talk about the more recent effect of the sexual revolution. So, In the 1960s, when the second wave of feminism started challenging that traditional nuclear family, which of course was never the norm everywhere, but the idea of a male breadwinner and a woman who served husband and children, um, served both domestically and sexually. Well, that was a pretty bad model for women. Wasn't such a great model for men in lots of ways either, and it certainly didn't benefit children. Okay, so we have a so-called sexual revolution, which kind of argues men and women are free sexual beings, not that much difference, you know, you know, let it all hang out, the free love kind of concept. Well, what that turned out to be, as many point, people both feminist and traditional pointed out, is to open up new ways for men to exploit women sexually. And that was a pretty bad deal. There's been a lot of good feminist writing about the consequences of the sexual revolution. Well, is the answer to that to go back to the traditional idea of a woman as basically servant to a man. Well, I don't see how that helps anybody. Uh, it's not as if that's the natural state of being. We we broke from it, and now we need to go back to it. If we need to go back to anything, we need to back go back to egalitarian, collaborative, cooperative relationships. And we don't know what those will look like, because none of us today have ever lived in them. So we're making uh, making it up as we go along, in a sense, with you know some guidelines some ideas but uh, this idea that women are naturally you know designed whether it's by evolution or by god to serve men in domestic and sexual such a situations i see no evidence for it i see no evidence that it helps women but it's understandable that some people especially women would Hold on to that when the consequences of the sexual revolution have been so devastating. You know, it's created a world in which many women, especially younger women and even children, girls, assume their value is as an objectified female body for presentation on social media and eventually for the use by men. And that is not a world we want to see. But the reverting back to the old style, it doesn't strike me, is gonna get us where we need to be or want to be.
0: So what do we do when we are talking about feminism and we've got men and women saying, but you're not a feminist. Feminism supports sex workers. Feminists and feminism includes trans women as women. Feminism is pro the porn industry because this is how women are empowered. All of that stuff... You and I know really well. So it's anti-feminism in the name of feminism, which gives it some kind of authority, doesn't it? It gives those people authority. How do we do that without lecturing and dictating and saying my feminism is right? Because actually, I know my feminism's right. I know that your analysis of sexual exploitation, the sex trade and the like, I know that's right. What do we do? How do we actually say this?
1: Well, I have a, a three-step plan to uh, solve this problem, and I'd like to lay that out right now. Uh, of course, I don't. Uh, all I can say is that I I think we're likely to be more successful when we ask questions rather than lecture. Uh, and this coming from a former teacher who lectured at students for 26 years. But uh, let me give you an example. Uh, I come from the political left in the United States Um, and there's a a kind of critical media studies that emerged in the in the left and it pointed out that in mainstream media, you know, advertising Hollywood movies, television, whatever it is. uh, There's a lot of subtle and sometimes not so subtle racist and sexist imagery right Uh, this analysis has been going on for decades now and so. I will ask uh, leftist and feminist friends who support pornography, I'll say, do you agree that this media criticism of the sexist and racist imagery in the mainstream is appropriate? And they, yes, yes, absolutely, right? We have to be on guard. And I'll say, okay, the most overtly racist and sexist media genre I'm aware of is contemporary pornography. And, you know. 30 seconds on the internet will demonstrate this. But I I talk about those patterns of deeply, openly misogynist, cruel and degrading to women, deeply racist, you know, old school, you know, 19th century racist stereotypes. And I'll say, say, so why are much more subtle, but troubling patterns like this in mainstream media a problem, but more overt, crude, and really disturbing patterns like this in pornography are not a problem and and that you know can lead to a conversation doesn't always uh and even if people you know try to rationalize why they support the porn industry despite its racist and sexist images at least you plant the seed of doubt and i think um as as you're well aware um sometimes the people we argue with are not the real target <laughs> in right. other words if if you're arguing with somebody you know will not change their opinion you're really speaking to other people in the room. You're speaking to those especially younger people who might not yet have formed a hard and fast idea. And they they see the contradiction in that lefty defense of porn. And they start to ask themselves, oh, I thought that was what it meant to be a good feminist is to support sex workers. But now you're telling me it's not an attack on sex workers to critique pornography, prostitution, stripping, massage parlors. It's an attack on the system of male privilege and the routine sexualizing of women. Ah, okay. Now, that's, that's a hopeful um, approach. Uh, The fact is, as you point out, we're not winning the debate. But I have noticed that more and more people are starting to question, you also mentioned the question about transgender ideology. And that's the one where uh, I've been speaking a lot lately, uh, often being derided by people who tell me I'm a transphobe. But I can see that other people are listening and noting the kind of intellectual incoherence of the trans argument. And to to see somebody critiquing that argument, they can see, oh, I'm not a bad person if I'm critical or curious about The transgender claims. This actually happened just a few days ago, where uh, I was criticized very sharply by a young feminist who thought I was a transphobe. And I patiently and, and calmly tried to explain my position. And I could see other people nodding, saying, oh, so he's not just a bigot. He's actually got a position that makes a lot of sense. All right. So that means, you know, we get roughed up in public debate sometimes, and in your case, uh, you know, literally roughed up in person. Um, you've you've faced far greater threats than I ever have. Uh, there's a, a quick footnote. There's something in that, that women who criticize transgen- transgender ideology tend to get much more virulent and often personal attacks than men. So, you know, I've had people yell at me and people tell me I'm a bad person, But I've never been physically threatened. I've never had anyone challenge me the way you've been challenged. And I think that's a pattern, um, which is not surprising in patriarchy, that men can critique. And if they're criticized, it's not with the same emotional weight as women. Uh, And I found that in the anti-porn movement, that the women who critique pornography get savaged in ways I never do. Um, I'm, you know, in some ways, I guess I'm grateful for that. But it's really um, a reflection of that same patriarchal system.
0: And within that, sometimes, not always, and I'm not even sure what this means in terms of the way that I organise with feminists, probably nothing. For lesbians, and I'm a lesbian, they double down even more. There's even more anger. And it's difficult because I find I have far more in common with women who are feminist but heterosexual, but have that understanding of what real, true sexual liberation is. And Of course, a big part of that is being able to actually live happily and openly as a lesbian. And th- then I do sometimes, not always, lesbians who, of course, particularly in recent years, will identify as queer and will ally themselves more closely with men I find that a real tension for me as a feminist because, of course, all women are my sisters, but not all women are feminists. And women are after often, and particularly with the issues that we're talking about here, prostitution and the sex trade, transgender ideology, women really are uh, gunning on the bad side. They are the foot soldiers. They are leading this charge in many ways. And that was some of the thing. One of the things I found which surprised me in writing my last book on feminism was how many women are actively pushing this agenda as opposed to simply being led along by men.
1: Well, as a man, I've always made it a point not to to critique women, especially to critique women who identify as feminists. That's not my place. It's not my role. But the pattern you're talking about is certainly clear. You know, a simple reflection on language demonstrates that you use the term lesbian. Every, you know, I'm in my mid 60s, all the, the women I learned feminism from use the term lesbian, many of them were lesbian feminists. And I think among younger women, either gay, a gay woman or queer is by far the more common. And I'll often ask those younger women, are, are you lesbian? And And you can see them kind of rear back because they've never really thought about it. The problem of course is lesbian is too identified with lesbian feminism with the second wave, with that really fierce critique of patriarchy. And that critique um, is not the norm in these younger circles anymore. I saw it in, in women and gender studies at the university level. Um, in the, the 26 years I taught at the University of Texas, I saw the women's studies program go from a space where my critique of pornography, you know, rooted in the radical feminist critique, wasn't necessarily the dominant position, but it was acceptable. You could have a discussion with, with others about it. By the time I retired in 2018, that space had been largely eliminated. Let me tell you a quick story. I have a really wonderful undergraduate student who was a women's studies major. And she came in and um, she was kind of scared of her senior seminar in women's studies, the capstone class, the place where you were supposed to really put it all together. And I said, what are you nervous about? She said, I want to do a presentation on a a project critiquing porn, but I'm afraid. I said, well, what are you afraid of? She said, my classmates will laugh at me. And she said, I have to suppress my own ideas in class, lest I get basically, you know, intellectually uh, harassed for holding a critical view on pornography. Um, And I said, well, what are you gonna do about it? She said, well, I went into the professor who at the time was the director of the women's studies program. And I said, (laughs) do you mind if I make my presentation on the final day of class? And the professor said, why? And she explained, and instead of the professor saying, well, that's unacceptable that students are making you feel that way. Let's talk about it in class. Let's talk about the need for a a rich and, and vibrant debate about this. The professor simply said, OK, you can go last. Right? The student didn't want to make a presentation with any class days rem- remaining because she was afraid she would be basically you know, shunned. And the professor didn't try to intervene but, in fact, accepted that. That tells you something about where women's studies is at.
0: Oh, yes. If it's even ever called women's studies anymore. Yeah, uh,
1: And so I think those are real struggles. Um, the good news is, and I know you know this because you've become a, a real important person in feminism in the UK and in the US as well, is the younger women who have those radical feminist instincts are refusing to be quiet in a mm-hmm. lot of settings, yes. uh, especially outside the university. And they're, they're coming together in new kinds of organizing. Uh, and that's really exciting. And that's why you know your last book I thought was so important because here in plain language, no dressed-up academic jargon. Um uh, you, you write for human beings, not for academics. Although, wait, I have to say, as a former academic, I don't want to suggest academics aren't human beings, but uh, but just having that out there um uh, is really important. And so uh it's one reason I think the the slings and arrows that you have endured uh from the left, especially and from the wing of the feminist movement has identified with the male left. Um, I know it's not a lot of fun, but it's incredibly important because there's a lot of young women out there looking and saying, oh, this is a viable way to understand the feminist project. And it's, that's exciting. Uh, I wish there were more of those women. I wish the universities were more welcoming to those women, but you know that's, that's where we're at now and, and it's a struggle.
0: Well, I want to ask you one more question, and then I want to end on a quote, and I'm going to ask you what you think of this quote. But this question is pretty impossible for you to answer, my favourite types. You know how I like to make men suffer for crimes unnamed. So many years, you know. Tell me, why should feminists, why should women trust pro-feminist men?
1: Oh, that's an easy one. That's not a hard question. The answer, of course, is they shouldn't they shouldn't no one in a, a subordinated position in a social system should ever trust the people in the dominant position until that trust is earned. And um, that's the easy answer. The and I'm this is really it is a hard question in another way. Because, you know, 35 years ago, when I first got involved in this, Uh, I thought I was moving into a community of pro-feminist men I could trust. And what I learned is I couldn't trust them all. That men who identify with the feminist movement are not guaranteed to be ethical, responsible, decent people. And that's really not surprising because, let's face it, human beings, we're a nasty species. We all are capable of of betraying not only ourselves but others. But I have seen far too many examples of men in the pro-feminist movement who are in a way in it for themselves. Um, you know, they they've moved into this, I think often out of a real commitment to trying to fight patriarchy. But ego takes over, right? The desire to be, you know, the, the king of the hill takes over. And those kind of things play out all the time. And the there have been some very well-known cases of of leaders in the pro feminist men movement who it turns out were sexually irresponsible or were harassing to women and and people without power. So that's just part of being human is accepting that. But to go back to your question, uh, women have a right to ask men to be accountable and to demonstrate they're trustworthy. Uh, And I've been trying to do that for 35 years and I have failed at times uh, because I'm human. I've tried to acknowledge my failures. (laughs) Uh, And I've been able to build some wonderful relationships with women working in the movement, for which I'm incredibly grateful. Um, uh, It doesn't mean I think I've done it perfectly. Uh, It means that what I've learned is that when I screw up, it's far better to acknowledge it than to try and cover it up. And that's the problem pro-feminist men trying to rationalize or cover up their own bad behavior.
0: And, and it's difficult, it's difficult for feminists where, when we let women down, when we make a wrong call, when we, when we do the wrong thing or, or when there are consequences for other women. And I, you know, I just think as, as time goes on, this is something that we should just admit to and talk about immediately. We're not going to ask for support, sympathy and therapy. We're going to just say, sometimes we screw up.
1: And you know, you never know where you're going to find allies. So I, I was just thinking of two younger men I've met in the anti-pornography movement, one who's very aware of the failures of his elders, you know, pro-feminist men. And so he's very cautious and I, I encourage him to think about that, but also not to be afraid to step out and and take chances and do work and realize that failing now and then isn't the end of the world. The other younger man I was thinking of comes not out of the feminist movement, but out of the Christian movement, but has been doing wonderful anti-pornography media work. Uh, and he's far it's a kind of ironic situation. This fairly conservative Christian man is far more open to the feminist critique than most of the left men I know. Right? He's curious. He wants he he knows that he's rooted in a different system of a, a a Christian worldview. But he knows it's not incompatible with some of the insights of feminism and he's curious and wants to learn. And my conversations with him are far more interesting and productive than they are with a lot of my lefty male friends. Uh, so you never know where you're going to find allies. Uh, your allies are always going to let you down sometime. Uh, but I do think uh, that if the pro-feminist men's movement can be better at holding ourselves accountable then it'll be easier for feminist women to if not trust us completely and you know it's probably smart not to to at least look for productive ways to work together um where you don't have to take on the the failures of men that's for we men to to deal with ourselves and to hold each other accountable
0: well i want that i want that trust and i want desperately for there to be a stronger, more vibrant, pro-feminist, anti-sexist men's movement, whatever we want to call it. And you and I are going to be doing a piece of work together on this, Bob. The thing is that you don't know that yet, but we'll we'll talk after. Where you Bob. lead,
1: I will follow you anywhere. Okay, I'm not much of a singer, but you get the point.
0: Well, you know, this is music to my ears. Your Your, your singing voice might not be, but definitely your response. Um, But look, this this is the quote I want to end on. It's from Andrea Dworkin, who we both knew, we both admired, respected, loved. And I love this quote. It's one of her best, I think. And what she says. And it kind of links to the themes that we've been exploring during this, this talk. I would like to see in this movement a return to what I call primitive feminism. It's very simple. It means that when something hurts women, feminists are against it. Now, it's both simple and complicated as hell, isn't it? But it's kind of beautiful, I think. And she published this in her chapter for a book, Sexual Liberals and the Attack on Feminism. And it was entitled Woman Hating Right and Left. This is the toxic mess that feminists and our supporters and allies are embedded in right now. But it's good to know, isn't it, that we have the entire world to fight. (laughs) It's not just on one side of the political fence.
1: Yeah, it's hard for me to talk. Uh, I met Andrea once. I had one opportunity to meet her. It was... Uh, near the end of her life, when she was physically not well, and part of what I'm reacting to is uh, both the joy and the pain in meeting her. Uh, a friend was taking her uh, between two cities, and I was allowed to ride along. So I sat in the back seat and soaked up this the the wind, the wisdom, the insight, and the humor of this woman, Andrea Dworkin. You know, is kind of the poster child for a humorless feminism, which is hilarious because she's one of the funniest people I've ever met warm, rich kind of conversation with her. And at the same time, when she walked away from the car, as we went to the hotel, the pain, the physical pain she was in and the emotional struggles um, that were part of that really were heartbreaking to see. Uh, She was an extraordinary human being, even though I can't claim to have been her friend. But I certainly learned from her that book you just quoted from, I can remember where I was when I bought it and read it and devoured it. But there's another part um, that I was thinking about. When Andrea was in Minneapolis in the 1980s, working on the first uh, local ordinance to create a civil rights approach to pornography with Catherine McKinnon, I was living in Minnesota and I remember mocking her. This was when I was younger. I had not read her. There were newspaper stories that painted her as kind of a wild, crazy feminist. And I bought right into it because I had no framework for understanding. And I always feel a bit of, um, of shame. And I think that's appropriate that at that point in my life, I was too afraid of what Andrea was saying. Uh, my reaction to her was fear-based because she was telling the truth that I didn't want to hear. And about 10 years later, I started reading her work and she changed my life, um, uh, not single-handedly, but I think Andrea's Prose, as, as you were just pointing out, had such a power, such a clarity um, that a lot of us um, had that reaction to her. I still remember um, when Andrea died, my friend Gail Dines, who you know well from the anti-porn movement, called me and said, what are we going to do now?
0: Mm. Yeah, I remember.
1: It's not, it's not to create Andrea some mythical hero. It's to remember that it's the courage of certain people, in this case, certain women, who who took a lot of punishment, psychological, um, political, you know, and did it uh, for the greater good. And we all benefited from it. So I think that is a, a really wonderful quote on which to end. It, it, it's the moral clarity, the literary genius of Andrea Dworkin. And uh, I'll end with with, uh, my favorite quote of my own, which is to remember that I grew up thinking feminism, especially radical feminism was a threat. Whatever feminism was, it wasn't gonna work out well for me. That's the culture teaching me to be afraid of feminism. And what I learned after I finally met feminist women, read feminist writing, especially the work of Andrea, I finally realized, oh, feminism, especially the most radical feminism, is not a threat to men, it's a gift. It's the way out of the trap that I had been, you know, socialized into. And so uh, I, I often react very emotionally when Andrea's name is mentioned, when her words are quoted because of how important her work was to me and, and the way she helped me realize, I don't need to be afraid of you, Julie Bindle. You're not a threat to me. You are um, part of the way that I move into a better version of myself. And so uh, here's to Andrea. Here's to that moral clarity and that literary brilliance.
0: Oh, yes. And, you know, she is one of the big change makers. And there are often people that we can count that have made most change in the world for the best. And she's certainly one of them. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's been wonderful as ever.
1: Oh, It's a real joy to talk. Thanks, Julie.
0: Thank you for listening and as you heard at the end of that interview Bob and I are planning to collaborate on a big project now watch this space I'm very excited about it until next time.